Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, your award-winning Texas history podcast. This is your host, Ken Wise. I really appreciate you tuning in today for a little Texas history. I want to start by thanking everybody for all the feedback on the interview with author Stephen Harrigan and his new book, Big Wonderful Thing. Keep it coming. I've got uh, another interview scheduled uh, this week. I'm going to record it. As a matter of fact, I think you'll find it interesting as a uh, Another in the Writing Texas History series, but from a little bit different angle. So stay tuned. Uh, There may be a regular episode, maybe a bonus episode, but um, I enjoyed uh, doing the interview. And uh, Stephen Harrigan's book's doing very well, and I'm very, very interested in all your thoughts on it. And uh, well, it's finally getting cooler as we record this episode. I'm recording and releasing this episode in October 2019. And uh, the cooler weather usually means football. Uh, My football mood is sort of up and down this year. Hope your football season's going well. Um, But what is going on right now as I record this is the Houston Astros are playing the Washington Nationals in the World Series, and they just tied it up two games to two last night. So we're all very excited in the Houston area for the Astros. Fall means hunting season two for all of you. I hope you're getting outdoors, enjoying some of the great hunting we have in Texas. I'm looking forward to getting out myself in the southeast Texas area. It's a hot one day, cool the next this time of year. I call it a one straw day, then a felt day. Anyway, the older I get, the more I certainly enjoy our cool weather. And I'm lucky to spend a lot of time on ranches around Texas. I'll drive a long way to visit a new ranch, and I always enjoy it. Hunting season usually affords the opportunity to spend a little more time on a ranch, and of course, that makes me think about cattle. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about the cattle business and learn about someone who ranked right up there with the cattle kings of Texas. This person was well-educated, which was often the exception rather than the rule. This person actually taught school before discovering the cattle business. And in addition to a school teacher, this person was also a freelance writer. But once some of the proceeds from that writing and that teaching were invested in cattle and increased almost tenfold, the cattle business looked pretty good. This person went up the Chisholm Trail, registered one of the earliest brands in Travis County, Texas, and died wealthy. The difference was this person was a woman. So let's go back to the late 1800s and learn about Lizzie Johnson, the Texas Cattle Queen. You know, post-Civil War America was not a time or a place where women were expected, allowed, or even often thought capable of being business moguls. In fact, they were expected to raise the children, keep the house, and maybe be a school teacher. But Texas has always been different, and we've talked on this podcast a lot about the incredible women that uh, occupy so much of Texas history. We talked about Pamela Mann, who took her oxen back from Sam Houston. Angelina Eberly, one of my favorite characters in Texas history, firing a cannon in Austin to stop uh, the movement of the land office archives from Austin to Washington on the Brazos. We talked about Bessie Coleman, the first African-American licensed pilot. Well, Lizzie Johnson ranks right up there with great Texas women. She was the daughter of Thomas Jefferson Johnson 
and Catherine Hyde Johnson, and she was born in Missouri in 1843. She was actually second cousins with the great Texas hero Albert Sidney Johnston, who we discussed in episode 17. So go back and check that episode out. Her father started a school in Hayes County, Texas, just south of Austin, south of Travis County, called the Johnston Institute. And that place itself has a unique history. I found out as I was working on this episode, it started as a log building. But in 1868, Thomas Johnson built a limestone building that was both the school building as well as the dorm. It was a boarding school. And after Johnson died, it remained open for a few years, even after his death, before closing. It also had a cemetery on the grounds, and Thomas Johnson and his wife, Catherine, were both buried there, as were some slaves and uh, other members of the family. But what's more interesting is that the famous author Walter Prescott Webb bought the old Johnson Institute property in 1942. He leased it out to someone else for use as a boy's summer camp. Another famous author, Roy Betacek, lived at the camp in 1947, and that's where he wrote his famous book, Adventures of a Texas Naturalist. Eventually, the person who leased the property for the camp bought it, and it remained operating as a camp until 1984. At that point, the property was sold to something called the International Society of Divine Love, which uh, proceeded to build a huge temple on the site as well as um, mess around with the graves of the Johnsons, which ended up getting them sued in the 90s. And uh, they they essentially destroyed the limestone building um, and the Texas Historical Commission removed the recorded historic landmark designation. So uh, and, and not a very nice end to that historic property, but it definitely hosted some uh, historic events. Uh, one more thing about Mr. Johnson's school he was actually offered the present-day site of the University of Texas as a location for that school, but he reportedly turned it down because he was opposed to all the liquor and drinking that occurred in big cities. Imagine that, drinking at the University of Texas, but I digress. Mr. Johnson was uh, a very strict schoolmaster, apparently. His nickname was Old Bristletop, and the students were convinced that he could see miles in every direction because he always caught them when they were up to something. So that's the father that raised Lizzie Johnson, and she started teaching at the Johnson Institute when she was 16 years old. And she took after her father, and she had the reputation as a strong disciplinarian too. She taught French, math, bookkeeping, which was accounting for us, music, and spelling. And by the way, in addition to her father's school, Lizzie had a diploma from uh, the Chapel Hill Female College, which was... Um, speaks for itself. It was a female college in Chapel Hill, Texas, right outside of Brenham. And uh, the head of that school was a man named Reuter, who was a former president of Transylvania University in Kentucky, where Stephen F. Austin and many other early Texans, including some of my family members, attended. That Chapel Hill College closed in 1912. Lizzie went on to teach in Maynard, Texas, Lockhart, and Austin, Uh, But she had a little secret. She was a writer on the side. She was a freelance writer. She uh, would write for various magazines, uh, including one magazine, uh, coincidentally called Judge Magazine. Happened to like that title. Uh, What was interesting about that magazine, I discovered, was the former one of the former editors that started at that magazine 
ended up founding the New Yorker magazine, which still exists today. So uh, I think we as Texans can claim credit uh, for the New Yorker magazine, although I'm not sure we want to. You can decide that. Well, Lizzie would uh, got paid as a school teacher, but she made quite a, a fair amount of money for her writing, and she was very frugal, saved the money, and she began investing it, and she invested it in cattle. Now, remember, this is post-Civil War Texas, and the cattle business was booming, at least in the north. She registered brand number 45 in the Travis County brand book. You can go look at that. It belongs to Elizabeth Johnson. That's our Lizzie. It was registered in June 1st, on June 1st, 1871. And she records the markings on her cattle as three ear notches. And her brand is a CY brand in very elegant font, befitting, of course, a school teacher. Now, I mentioned the cattle business after the Civil War. When the Civil War started, of course, uh, many of the People who had cattle herds, the men went off to fight in the war, and the cattle herds became unmanageable, and they were just allowed to roam. They weren't tended. And so loose cattle swarmed all over the state of Texas for that and other reasons. And obviously, when you have a lot of something, uh, they became less and less valuable. In fact, there was a point in time where they were killed solely for their hides and their tallow those were called the those times were called the skinning wars because the meat was the meat was left to rot because it just wasn't that valuable but the opposite was true up north demand was very high so if texans could figure out how to get that beef up north they'd make a huge profit and even get rich and so it was around this time that lizzie and remember she was a bookkeeping teacher and accounting teacher saw an opportunity to build a, whole, a herd. And so she had made an investment in stock of a cattle business that did very well. So that's how she learned how lucrative this business could be. But she also figured out if she could go brand some of these wild cattle, she could build her herd fairly quickly. And that's exactly what she started to do. In the meantime, she got married. She got married in 1879 to a man named Hezekiah Williams, and from time to time, we come across these names that are not used as much as I think they ought to be. So any listeners out there about to have a, a boy, you might want to consider Hezekiah, just saying. Um, Lizzie was 36 years old when she married Hezekiah, and of course, that was very unusual back then. He was a preacher, but he was also a drinker, and uh, Lizzie didn't quite like that. Her dad raised her to um, hate the evils of alcohol, as I had mentioned earlier, and Uh, but she tolerated it, apparently. But she did one other thing that was also very unusual for the time. She kept her business separate from her husband's business. In fact, they used different brands. Hezekiah had cattle, too, but he recorded a different brand, and he recorded it in Travis County 10 years after Lizzie. You can see that in the brand book. Hezekiah's brand was recorded in 1881. It reminded me when I was reading that, I had a great aunt and great uncle in Montgomery growing up in the 70s and and uh, they also kept their cattle separate, which was always amusing because if one of them got sick and I was with my great uncle, that would have been one of my great aunt's uh, cows. And, uh, of course, when we went to the auction, we were taking my great uncle's cows anyway. That was pretty funny. It made me think of them. Um, but they had to get those cattle up north. And so Hezekiah 
was going to take his up the Chisholm Trail, and so was Lizzie. The difference is Lizzie wasn't going to send them. She took them herself. Uh, a family that drives cattle up a trail together must stay together. Lizzie went up the Chisholm Trail like any other cowboy. And uh, when she got, we think she may have been the first. She was not the only woman to go up the Chisholm Trail. There are others in history that are recorded as making these trips. And these were very hard trips. But uh, we think Lizzie may have been the first or one of the first. And when she would get up to the end of the trail, she would work for a time in St. Louis as a bookkeeper. And she would keep the books for these other cattlemen, which would also um, make her some extra money. So she was quite the entrepreneur. Well, about the 1880s is when the cattle business started to trail off. No pun intended, and, uh, but Lizzie was tough. She went up the trail several times and uh, managed her business very carefully. She was said to have a wonderful eye for picking out the best cattle, um, but an interesting little phenomenon in the Williams family, uh, Lizzie and Hezekiah used the same foreman to manage their herd, and uh, the, apparently Lizzie and Hezekiah each separately told that foreman to brand the others unbranded calves and he would joke that uh, Lizzie would brand all of Hezekiah's calves and Hezekiah would brand all of Lizzie's calves so you can imagine that was something else well um, Lizzie had a, a great eye for business in, in addition to cattle and she started buying real estate uh, she bought the Bruggerhoff building which was located at 919 Congress in downtown Austin now there's an office building there today uh, but that is a prime address, and the Bruggerhoff building stood until I think it was torn down in the 90s, if uh, I remember. Anybody out there remember that? Send me an email. Um, but she held that building for quite a while and lived in it. She also owned a building at 215 6th Street, which is down from the little bit east of the Driscoll Hotel. Um, I looked at a picture of that on Google Street View. That's uh, now a food mart next to a tattoo parlor, but that's 6th Street for you. And it may, it may be the original structure. It may have been the actual structure Lizzie owned. She had land in the hill country. Uh, she had ranches in far west Texas. She even had some property near Conroe in Livingston. Um, she and Hezekiah also had a big ranch in Hayes County, and they tried to found a city. They founded a, a town called Hayes City, and they uh, attempted to get the county seat of Hayes County moved to Hayes City, but they were unsuccessful. Um, she would always, Lizzie would always dress to the nines when she traveled, and she loved to travel. Uh, she bought the finest, biggest dresses of the time. Now, this we're getting into the late 1800s now, and you had those big dresses. She bought um, a lot of diamonds, not only because they're pretty, but because she knew they were a good investment. I found some notation that she and Hezekiah actually lived in Cuba for a time. Now, Cuba was great cattle country, so that might have been um, an, an adventure in the cattle business. Hezekiah uh, ended up taking sick. He died in El Paso uh, after trying to um, be cured in various places. We don't know exactly what he passed from. And after that, Lizzie uh, dropped out a little bit. She stayed in Austin. Uh, she had a good friend in Major George Littlefield, uh, but that was really it. Other than that, she was considered a very miserly old lady with, with very few friends. She lived in that Bruggerhof building that she owned, and she was very 
tight with her money. She was solicited by every charity in town, and she would rarely give. I mentioned she dressed uh, very fancy when she traveled, but when she stayed in Austin, she dressed very plainly, uh, sort of raggedly. She wouldn't eat hardly anything. She wouldn't spend any money on food. There was a restaurant in the Bruggerhof building that would send her meals, but it turns out her relatives were actually paying for those meals. She thought she was getting the food for free, which was great with her, uh, but her relatives were actually paying for it, so she'd have decent food to eat. Uh, she was said to have more than once been mistaken for a homeless beggar when she would walk the streets, go into the post office or something, and she would laugh about that because people would give her money, and, of course, she would take it even though she was wealthy and then think she'd really pulled something off. Uh, so that was interesting. She would also, there was a, a story that she would issue, the, the Bruggerhof building was heated with wood stoves, and she would keep the wood sticks locked up in a room and she would issue them to the tenants stick by stick and she would never burn more than one stick at a time well you know if it gets cold enough you're going to need more than one stick in your wood stove but uh, she wouldn't do that she um, she eventually became severely undernourished and uh, now this is kind of a sad sad end but she uh, you know just went further and further downhill ended up living with her niece in her final years and Lizzie died in 1924. After her death, that niece that she lived with went to the Bruggerhof building to go through her things. And she found cash scattered all over the apartment. She found it in bookcases and scattered around in, in cracks in the wall and in various other places. And she also knew that Lizzie had all those diamonds that she had bought. Well, she finally found them, and she found them in the basement of that building at 215th 6th Street in a very nondescript box wrapped in a cloth. So I'm not sure if y'all want to go up by that food mart on 6th Street, but they might not have found all the diamonds. I don't know what's in the basement there now. Her estate, the, the state documents reflect that her estate was valued at over $180,000, which is real money today, but was certainly real money in the 1920s. She didn't have a real good relationship, as you can imagine, with most of her relatives. And the relatives sold off the land uh, for cash. And of course, much later, there was oil discovered on much of Lizzie Johnson's land. So if she had lived even longer, she would have gone from cattle baron to oil baron. Well, Lizzie Johnson, in, toward the end of her life, was certainly a recluse, but she was also a Texas legend. She was more educated than most women of her time, a sharper business person than most women of her time, an entrepreneur and a trailblazer, literally and figuratively. And that was Lizzie Johnson, the Texas cattle queen. Well, now we come to the part of the episode called Getting There, where I tell you how to go see a couple of places I talked about in the episode. Uh, Lizzie and Hezekiah are buried next to each other in the historic Oakwood Cemetery in Austin, which is off of I-35 near the University of Texas Tennis Facility. Right across from campus, you can't miss it. They're in there. Um, the Bruggerhof building, as I mentioned, was torn down. Uh, 919 Congress is a large office building. Uh, the Texas Tribune is in there, I know for a fact. And there are other businesses in that building. And the Johnson Institute was located 
on Camp Ben McCullough Road, which is the road to the famous Salt Lick Barbecue Restaurant outside of Austin. But there's some sort of religious temple bought, uh, built on it now, so if you see signs for some kind of temple, that's where the Johnson Institute was and where the authors, Walter Prescott Webb and Roy Betacek, did so much of their work. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, the Wise About Texas Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Wise About Texas. Tell a friend about the show, and if you have a minute, leave a review on iTunes. I appreciate you listening. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.